You're listening to a message from Victory Dumaguete. We are in a series called Trustworthy, and we are looking into the book of Isaiah once again. We're looking at this in a different perspective. We're looking into God's covenant with His people. And like what the series suggests, if you look at the book of Isaiah, it all boils down or funnels down to the trustworthiness of God. Amen? you have been placed in a crossroads in your life wherein you have to trust God. I guess every single one of us have experienced that in our Christian walk. Okay, so we will look into this. We'll look into Isaiah chapter 2. So please turn your Bibles with me for a while to Isaiah chapter 2. We will look into verses 1 down to verse 5. But you'll be needing your Bibles later because we will look into some verses as well. Here it is. It says here, Isaiah chapter 2 verses 1 to 5. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days, or the last days, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it, and many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord in the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and they shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk into the light of the Lord. This is interesting. I have just learned that on the podium of the United Nations office or headquarters, Isaiah chapter 2 is inscribed on its very podium. It's quite odd that of all places in the world that Isaiah chapter 2 could fit in, it's in the United Nations. So sometimes you have the right verse in the wrong places, but nonetheless, let's consider it this way. It's going to be a prophetic one for the United Nations. Because this verse actually talks about the cease of war and all of these things. Okay, so let's begin with verse 1. It says here, The words that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. What I like about this is the fact that we have already covered portions of the book of Isaiah. So I feel like it's going to be easier for me to explain this to you because you have a context or a background of what the book of Isaiah is all about. If you remember in our Salt and Light series, we actually said the same thing. If you go to Isaiah chapter 1, we understand that, you know, this was during the time that King Uzziah died and Isaiah had a vision and the vision was concerning Judah and Jerusalem. While I was looking at this, I remember a time when I was in high school. I had a Japanese classmate back in high school. And what was added for us during that time was all of us had cell phones, but we didn't have one. This was during the times of 5110s. I think you know what I'm talking about. So we all have our cell phones. And my Japanese classmates, of all people, didn't have one. And we were asking, why don't you get yourself a cell phone? And was telling us, I'm only going to get a cell phone if I can already see the person that I'm talking to. And all of us actually burst in laughter. We were laughing about the prospect of, you can see the person that you're talking to. Of course, to us right now, it's normal, but at that time, it was unbelievable. I was sharing it because I just remembered while reading Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1. Because Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1, it says here that Isaiah saw the word. All right? 
Isaiah didn't hear the word, he saw the word. He gives us a picture that actually the word see here in its original Hebrew simply means to envision. What we have here is the fact that God had given Isaiah a vision. Alright, so God had given Isaiah a vision. In what sense did that transpire? We actually do not know. All we understand is that God has given Isaiah a vision. And it was a clear-cut vision that Isaiah had started writing these things down. What Isaiah saw was a vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And we understand this from our Solid Light series. We did say that this was a vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And if you would allow me to repeat this, I'd like to give all of us the historical setting for Isaiah chapter 2. This transpired in around 740 B.C. And the situation was the nation of Assyria was conquering the nations around them. The present-day Assyria could be Persians of the current-day Iraq. We understand that Babylon is also Persians of current-day Iraq. But Assyria was a powerful empire then, and they were making their way towards Syria, Damascus area right now, the current Syria, and they were also making their way towards the northern kingdom of Israel. Are you guys getting the picture? So this was a scary time for the neighboring nations of Assyria because Assyria was progressing in terms of their military might, in terms of their power, and they were trampling on every single nation that were around them, include, like what I said, the nation of Syria, and of course, the northern kingdom of Israel. So because of the threat, the northern kingdom, if I may say this, you remember that the kingdom was divided into two, the northern kingdom, which is Israel, and the southern kingdom, which is Judah. Okay, so this prophetic word was concerning the southern kingdom, Judah, isn't it? Now, the northern kingdom was a little panicky about this situation that they did something the northern kingdom made coalitions with other nations. It's kind of like Assyria is about to conquer us, and if they conquer us, they're going to conquer you as well. What if we do these things? Why don't we join forces, our army, and fight against Syria? That was what the northern kingdom did, and what they wanted to do was to have a coalition with their neighboring nations in order to repel Assyria. And of course, if we're talking about neighboring nations, we're also talking about the invitation going to the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom extended the invitation to the southern kingdom of Judah to join them. Having that as a background, Isaiah started warning against such military coalitions. He was like telling the southern king of Judah, you don't want to do this. Instead, he was teaching them or telling them, or admonishing them to do one thing, and that is to trust the Lord. To trust the Lord. In short, Isaiah was like saying, your salvation, kingdom of Judah, will not rest on your military might or your coalition with other powerful nations, but your salvation will rest on God alone. So Isaiah was like, it's either strength in coalition, or shall we say strength in numbers, versus strength in the Lord. So as a prophet, he was telling Judah, please choose this. Choose to trust God because God will deliver you, right? Despite the panicky situation, he was telling them not to form coalitions with other nations, but rather to learn to trust God. Let me just talk about this for a while. I thought about this, and sometimes 
I realize that these things happen to us, isn't it? Things like this would happen to us. Sometimes we get into a crossroad wherein we'll have to make a decision. Decision in terms of two things. One, we need to make decisions when it comes to looking for a way out of our trouble. Secondly, we need to make decisions in terms of looking for a way into pleasure. Are you folks catching this? We get into crossroads in our life wherein we'll have to trust God or trust our connections. We'll have to trust God or trust our acquaintances. We'll have to trust God or trust our finance. We always get into those kinds of crossroads. Like what I said, we get into two crossroads. One, a crossroad wherein we find a way out of trouble. And the other one is to find a way into pleasure. Sometimes our way out of trouble would mean that we would compromise our convictions. Come on now. Sometimes that is on the table, we turn a blind eye into it, but that is the fact. Sometimes our way towards pleasure would mean that we would jeopardize our faith. In both cases, folks, I'd want us to understand whether it's way out of trouble or way into pleasure. Pleasure isn't bad after all if it is done the right way. Amen? Sometimes in these two things, we would probably get what we want the most, but we would lose what we would need the most. And in this aspect right here, verse 1 palang, this already teaches us that as God's people, we have to learn to trust God. Whether this is in the area of finance, in the area of relationship, whether that's in the workplace, or even in our personal walk with God. In this aspect right here, Isaiah was calling people to look at Mount Zion and the temple as a symbol of their salvation. And what is interesting here is that if you look at verse 2, here's what it says. It shall come to pass, it says here, in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. What is quite interesting here was, Isaiah here was talking about their current situation, isn't it? He was talking about, like what I was mentioning in verse 1, this was a vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem, right? And he was telling them, he was warning them, teaching them to learn to trust God. But what is interesting here is that if you look at verse 2, it says here, it shall come to pass in the latter days. In other translation, it talks about the last days. So while Isaiah was talking about their situation, guess what? It didn't end there. He was also talking about our situation in our time right now. So meaning to say this is quite relevant to every single one of us. What Isaiah saw then in 740 BC was a message for the times that we actually live in our generation right now. And this is quite interesting. In fact, this says so many things about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the question. What does the prophet see? What does Isaiah, what is it that he has seen in the vision that God has given him? First one, he has seen three things. And the first one, accordingly, he has seen the mountain of the Lord. 
Alright, in Isaiah chapter 2, when he had a vision, we understand that Isaiah saw the mountain of the Lord. And I want you to understand that this is very important. The first thing that he saw was the mountain of the Lord. It says here, it shall come to pass in the latter days. Look at this one. That the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Now, I want us to understand that this is very important. First, if you look at these words right here, it says here, mountain of the house of the Lord. Let's just take it this way. When you say house of the Lord, we're talking about the temple. So like what I said a while ago, the temple was built, as we understand, on Mount Zion, which is actually understandably in Jerusalem. All right? So the temple was built. What is the importance of the temple? We understand that the temple is where what? God tabernacles with His people. The temple is where the presence of God was during that time. So Isaiah was like, hey folks, hey folks, fix your eyes on Mount Zion, on the temple on Mount Zion, because that is where your salvation will come from. When you're all too panicky, when you're all too anxious about so many things, fix your eyes on the salvation, on the mountain, on the temple of the Lord. In essence, that is what he was saying. And then he was like saying in the latter days, in our days right now, he says, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of the mountains. I love that because if you would look at this, if you would try to understand this, let me just make a visionary junction for every single one of us. Let's say this was during the time of Isaiah. This was in 740 B.C. The latter days that he was pertaining to, as we understand, is the Messianic age, which is during the time that the gospel actually transpired. Jesus walking with us, the incarnation of Christ. But we understand as well that the Messianic age also occupies or extends to, what? to our age right now, which is the church age. Are you folks getting this? So while Isaiah was prophesying this, he was looking at this two junction right ahead of him. And he was like saying, there will come a time, he says, there will come a time that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established. In short, he was like saying, there will come a time that the mountain of the temple of God will be established, look at this one, as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. That is quite interesting, as you will understand in a while, because we have to understand what this mountain is. And we have to understand what this temple is. Because people would say, some scholars would say that this is talking about that someday a physical temple will be rebuilt in the earthly Jerusalem. And Christians like you and me have been praying for that. And you know what, I don't really think that that is the right interpretation of these verses right here. When we look at what we have here, all we need to do is, because this covers the junction where Jesus was born, so it gives us a picture that we have to look at the very words of Jesus, isn't it? Here's what he has to say. Remember the time that he cleared the temple. You folks remember that? When he cleared the temple of all of this gambling and all of these things, and then the Pharisees confronted him. What did he say? He says, destroy this temple. And I will rebuild it in three days. Oh, that's quite odd. Because the Pharisees were saying, you are a fool. 
It took decades to build this temple, and you're telling us that you're going to rebuild this in three days? That was a wrong perspective from the Pharisees because what he was saying was, destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. In short, what he was saying was that you're looking at the wrong temple right in front of you is the right temple. Because God tabernacles in us through Christ. Now Christ has come for that matter. We find that in John chapter 2, verse 19. He was actually talking about his bodily resurrection. In short, what the Pharisees were blinded to see was the fact that Jesus was actually telling them that I am the new temple. Come on out. He was saying, I am the new temple, and in me, God tabernacles with you. Our folks catching this. If you remember, in John chapter 4, verse 23 to 24, Jesus had a conversation with a Samaritan woman, isn't it? In a well. And then, you know, Samaritans and Jewish at the time, they don't really go well with each other. The Samaritan woman was like making a complaint. You Jews are saying that we should worship in Jerusalem. But our ancestors were telling us that we should worship in Mount Gerizim. What did Jesus tell her? Jesus tells her, a time is coming, lady. What did he say? And has now come. A time is coming, lady, and it has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshiper the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshiper must, spirit, uh, must worship in spirit and in truth. And he simply tells the lady that worship is not a matter of geographical boundaries. In essence, Jesus was selling her worship at this time in our age right now. It's no longer what confined in Jerusalem. It's no longer confined, as you say, in Mount Gerizim. But it could be in Beijing. It could be in Paris. It could be in Manila. It could be in Dumaguete. Where there is a true worshiper, those people can worship God. People were so fixed with structures. People were so fixed with the temple. But here Jesus comes in his incarnation in John chapter 1 verse 14 when he says that he is actually the word now tabernacled with us. And he's telling us, now you can worship God because I have come. Now you can worship God because I have come. So the question for us now is this one. If I say he's not talking about a literal temple on a literal mountain, what then is he talking about? In order for us to understand that, we'll have to look into the function of mountains and purposes of mountains in the redemptive history in the Bible. Now, I am not saying that this is true for all the mountains in the world. I don't want you thinking that you go up in Mount Talinis and say, Oh, here in Mount Talinis, this is part of God's plan for salvation. Tapos na po yun. It has already been accomplished. But I simply want to give us a picture of the role, function, and purpose of mountains. In the history of salvation. Look at this one. Here's the first one. First of all, we need to understand that mountains in the history of redemption is a place of salvation. Why did we say so? You remember Mount Ararat, which is in present-day Turkey right now. It is in Mount Ararat that the Ark of Noah actually landed. It's actually in Mount Ararat that the Ark of Noah actually rested. 
after several months of flooding on the earth. We find that in Genesis chapter 9, it was actually in Mount Ararat that God gave Noah a covenant to never again destroy the earth. It is a place of salvation. It is also in Mount Moriah, if you remember. In Mount Moriah, Abram was so ready in Genesis chapter 2 to plunge the dagger towards his son. And suddenly the angel of the Lord say, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, Abram. And together with that is a what? Is a ram that was provided in place of his son. In Mount Moriah, we understand that the mountain is a place of salvation. Not just that. In Mount Horeb, Moses encountered the burning bush. And it was there that God commissioned Moses to lead his people out of the slavery in Egypt. That was actually in Mount Horeb in Exodus chapter 3. We understand that the mountain is a place of salvation. Of course, we understand that what Isaiah was saying here is symbolically pointing to something. But it's not just a concept because if you look at history, we understand that salvation happened in all of these mountain ranges. Not just that, in Mount Sinai, God revealed this law and its ways to his people in Exodus chapter 20. And God simply tells them that, you know what, life will be given to those who follow these commandments. Gives us a picture that on Mount Sinai, we understand that it is a place of salvation. Here's the thing. The temple was built on Mount Zion. And it is on the same mountain in which Abram offered up Isaac with a different name. So we understand that the mountain is a place of salvation. And you know what? puts an exclamation mark to this? The one that puts an exclamation mark to this is this. Jesus was crucified in Golgotha. And it says here, all other mountains point to this mountain. So meaning to say, all of this history of salvation, the salvation of Isaac, the salvation of the people of Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, all of these stories of salvation on the mountains point to the pinnacle of this story right here. That in Golgotha, we understand that it is a place of salvation. That's why it says here, it shall be established as what? As the highest of the mountains in verse 2. It's going to be the highest of the mountains. That's quite interesting. It's going to be the highest of the mountains. I think about that. All right, in our time right now, if this is the case, so how relevant is this in our time right now? I'd like for us to understand that we're not looking to a physical temple, but we understand that what? In Matthew chapter 28, come on now. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And then he looks at the church and tells the church, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It gives us a picture that now Jesus commissions the church. No wonder the church is called. Look at this one. In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, it says here, the highest of the mountains, no wonder the church is called a city on a hill. No wonder the church is called a city on a hill. It says, that's why God has commissioned us, you and me. God has commissioned you and me to be what? To be a salt and light to the world. Because we are to reach the world. That's why we're called a city on the hill. It shall be established. The establishment here is not a physical establishment, but a spiritual one. And of course, we're looking at the church right now. 
So in short, what do we have here? Salvation comes only in this aspect. And we understand that salvation comes only through the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not just a place of salvation. It is also a place of governance. The mountains are a place of governance. If you remember Nebuchadnezzar, he had a vision of a rock. In Daniel chapter 2, he had a vision of a rock that struck and smashed an enormous statue. The rock that struck that statue became a huge mountain and filled the entire earth. It filled the entire earth. What does this tell us? It gives us a picture that, that no matter what kingdoms this world has in our time right now, in the generations to come, all of these things are fragile, temporary kingdoms. Sometimes it doesn't make any sense that we fight over politicians, that God has simply ordained to lead His people. But we understand that we should not be messianic about politicians because at the end of the day, everything is just basically volatile. Everything will just vaporize. Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom was a powerful kingdom. It seemed so stable and so secure, but we understand in Daniel chapter 2 that they were not going to last forever. That there was a rock that's going to smash these kingdoms, this big rock. And we understand that this is what? This is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean that we see this rock smashing the established kingdom, the established statue? It gives us a picture that Christ will smash the kingdoms of this world to give and signify to every people in the world that they have to make room for Christ. That they have to make room for the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the interesting thing that we see. He didn't just have a vision of the mountains. He also had a vision of flowing nations, streaming nations, nations. Just imagine this with me for a while. Imagine whatever nation that you may have in your mind right now. That may be Afghanistan, Lebanon, maybe Malaysia, whatever nation that you have right now. Think about 10 nations. Imagine those nations flowing and streaming. That is what I say had as a picture. It says here, the second thing that he saw was, in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, it shall come to mass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. Look at this one. And shall be lifted up above the hills. Like what I said, a city on a hill. Look at this one. And all the nations shall flow to it. Interesting, isn't it? What Isaiah was saying was that, the mountain, the temple of the Lord, which will be established, all nations will flow to it. While I was working this, I realized Jesus said something about this. If you folks remember this, Jesus said in John chapter 12, For I, when lifted up, will draw all men to myself. He starts saying it, For he, when lifted up, will draw all men to himself. And you see this here in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. It says here, And shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. Just allow us to understand this for a while. Isaiah here uses the well-known Hebrew word called goyim for the nations. He was talking about these nations as goyim. Alright, so when we say goyim, goyim is a term used for non Israelite nation. All non-Israelite nations, the Gentiles, together with that, including the what? The enemies of God or the enemies of Israel. These are called Goyim. In their context at that time, we could be talking about what? Egyptians. 
Can you form a map in your mind for a while? You have Israel, you have Egypt, you have Libya, you have Syria, you have Assyria. You have all of these nations around Israel. And these are the Goyims. You have the Assyrians, you have the Egyptians, you have the Canaanites. These are countless nations who've struggled against the people of God. These are the Goyims. I mean, this is interesting. I don't know if this excites you. What happens to the Goyims? What happens to the Goyims, it says here? They start coming to the mountain of the Lord. They start coming to the mountain of God. The Goyims start making their way towards the mountain of God. Is someone forcing them to do so? And no one's forcing them to do so. They simply come to the mountain of God. Look what they say. Look at this one. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 3. Here's what they say. Here's what the Goyims will say. And many people shall come and say, come. They say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob. In the past, the Goyims would go to Israel to conquer Israel. And true enough, if you look at the location of Israel, it's a strategic location for trade. And that's why they would conquer Israel. But notice why the nations would come now. Here's what it says here in verse 3. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Look at this. Let me just pause here for a while. I'd like for us to think about nations right now. I'd like for us to think about, let's say, the Iranians right now. Think about the people in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Think about the people in India, the people in Pakistan, the people in Vietnam. The vision of Isaiah was that, here's what they were saying. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. The what? The church of God. Come on now. The Burmese people with all the chaos that's happening to them, what were they saying? Come, let us go to the church of the living God. The church of the Christians. That is essentially what he was saying here. And no one's forcing them to do it. This is not like it's a crusade or something. No. It's simply that the church is a city on a hill. The church is so attractive for that matter. And they would say, come, let us go up to the church of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may what? That he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. My goodness, this is such great news for cross-cultural missionaries around the world. That they may walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth from the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The word of the Lord from Jerusalem here, we're talking about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. To use the last verse of the scripture that we've looked into, look at this one. They have seen, why are they going to the mountain of the Lord? Why are they going to the church of God? Why? Because they have seen, look at this one. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the world. Because they have seen the light of the church. Come on now. I think it's just right for us to put up a building as big as what we're putting up right now. Amen? Because we are anticipating people saying, come, let us go to the church over there. In essence, that is what we have. But we're not just praying for the triumph of Victory Dumaguete. We're praying for the triumph of the church in general in the entire corners of the city of Dumaguete. We speak blessing, of course, over all the churches here in general. Christian churches for that matter. They have seen what is at stake. They have come to meet the Lord Jesus Christ because they realize that Jesus is the only Savior and Lord. It says here, if you're here and you're praying for the salvation of someone, of a friend of yours who's so quote-unquote gahi, you have friends who are like that, 
Sometimes, hinatulad na natin, parang hindi yata masasave yan. Napaka-tigas. Palahubog kaayo. Bakakon kaayo. Bastos kaayo. You have friends who are like that, isn't it? Meron ba kayong friends na ganun? May friends ako ganun. Wala sa church. Sa labas ng church. Sometimes we have people in mind, but we don't want to preach the gospel. We want to preach the gospel to quote-unquote the easy ones. Now look at this one. Here's what it says here. To the house of the God of Jacob. You know what's interesting here? Doesn't talk about Isaac. Doesn't talk about Abraham. Isaiah simply says, the God of Jacob. So, I can't help but look into this for a while and say, and see what is it between God and Jacob. What have we learned between God and Jacob? Now look at this one. Here's the first one. The God of Jacob is the God of election. What do we understand? Before Jacob was born, he was already chosen. Before he made bad and good decisions, he was already chosen. And I want you to understand you are here because you have been chosen by God. Amen. So it wasn't like Jacob merited being chosen by God. Nope. So sometimes you have to keep preaching the gospel to someone because God is using you to bring in that which He has chosen. And sometimes you lose the opportunity of God using you and God uses someone else and in the end, you'll be accountable to the Lord for that. So it comforts us and tells us that whether God brings me to Shanghai, whether God brings me to Hong Kong, whether God brings me to Papua New Guinea, I'm gonna preach the gospel to anyone not on the basis on how they look, not on the basis of their tattoo, not on the basis of their attitude, but as a simple answer of a yes to the mandate of God, which he says in Matthew chapter 28, which is to evangelize and disciple peoples of the world. You also understand that the God of Jacob is the God of grace. Why? I would say Jacob might probably be mad with me about this. There might nothing be attractive about Jacob. Physically, I think Esau was more attractive. Atin atin lang to. Wag niyo kay Jacob. I mean, physically speaking, if you were to choose someone, I'd rather choose Esau. Better built, better looking perhaps. Ito pang mahirap. Hindi na nga pogi, pangit pang ugali. Because si Jacob, we understand that he was selfish. He was scheming. He was deceitful. He was untruthful. Perhaps he was the most unlovely character. And guess what, friends? That may be you before, and that may be some of your friends right now, but nothing can stand in the way of the grace of God. When the grace of God transforms, God's grace transforms us from the inside out. So who are we to say that I cannot preach the gospel to this because... He might reject me. Then if he rejects you, take that as a badge that you have obeyed the Lord. The God of Jacob is also the God of infinite patience. Sino sa inyo dito, if you're doing one-to-one with someone, minsan nagiging impatient kayo. Parang ano ba yan? Kasimpleng butang. Kasabot. Mask lang gani. Sometimes we get disappointed. <laughs> Can you imagine God's patience over you and me? God is a God of infinite patience. And He displayed this over Jacob. A careful study of the life of Jacob, you would understand that Jacob has a very despicable character. He lived a very 
far from a God-honoring life. And yet, God was there, patiently waiting for a time that Jacob would in turn be Israel and start walking the ways of God. The God of Jacob is the God of transforming power. The final years of Jacob's life reveals the triumph of God's mighty grace. In the closing scenes of his life, we see the spirit victorious over his flesh. The transforming power of God is displayed in the life of Jacob. So like what I said a while ago, Isaiah wrote it here. Isaiah was looking at the Goyims. Lord, sila, yes sila. God can change them. God has a transforming power to change their life. No matter how scary they look like, no matter how angry they were with God, that at one time that those knees will break down before the Lord of God and they will worship God for who He is. You have friends who are so, whose minds are so warped up because of drugs. You have friends that people have turned their back to because there's nothing good about their life right now. Look at the life of Jacob, perhaps. It will give us an assurance and confidence in preaching the gospel to them. Because God has basically chosen them. The God of Jacob is the God who loves us in Christ. So who are these goyims? Streaming to the mountain of the Lord in the last days. In the last days now. And guess what? We are in the last days. Amen? We are in the last days. No wonder that the church is increasingly becoming more and more in terms of its numbers. So who are the Goyims? Look at this one. I have a few here. First, the Goyims were the wise men from the east in Matthew chapter 2. It begins there. The Goyims is the centurion who believes in Luke chapter 7. The Goyims are the Samaritans who gave thanks in Luke chapter 17. The Goyims are the sinners like Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. The Goyims are the Samaritan woman at a well. The Goyims are what? The people in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. In Revelation chapter 7, the Goyims are what? The multitude that no one can count from every tribe, every people, and every language worshiping God. These are the Goyims. And might I remind every single one of us, we are the Goyims that have come streaming into the presence of God. The last one that we have here is that we will understand that God gives him a picture that God is the judge. As the Goyim approach the Lord's mountain, as they approach the Lord's mountain, they understand one thing, that God is the judge. And Isaiah makes it very clear here. Look at this one. God will judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. The grammar of this sentence is very important. Why? Because look at this one. The second part of the sentence is a result of the first part of the sentence. The second part that says, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares. What does it mean? Yung swords nila are useless anymore. Friends, look at this one. When Jesus judges, when Jesus rules, there's no need for war. If I may just exaggerate this, the tanks that the powerful nations of the world right now will be used for farming. 
Because that is what it says here. The swords will be beaten, melted again. To for what? For plowshares. Gamitin na lang natin yan for farming. Why? Because nation will not rise against nation. It is under what? When nations are submitted under the Lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Miss Universe question. Miss Universe answer that says world peace. Never gonna happen. It will not happen until nations are submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. It will not happen if the church will not do its part in preaching the gospel to the nations of the world. We have a role to play. Amen. The church has a role to play. We are a city on a hill. The church is the city on a hill. When the Goyim will meet the Messiah, when they realize that Jesus is Savior and Lord, when they walk in His light, they will beat their swords into plowshares. Before the cross of Christ, here's what will happen, friends. Before the cross of Christ, enemies will become friends. Enemies will become friends. Enemies will become brothers. And all walls of hostility will be broken down. What are the issues in our world right now? What are the social issues that we encounter right now? All of these things will be broken down before the cross of Christ. Jesus is the judge. And we have to be reminded that there's only one basis for judgment. And I'll end with this. He does not judge you by the wealth or money you have or the wealth and money that you do not have. He does not judge you by the success of your kids or the success of your grandkids. He does not judge you based on the success that you have in your life right now. He does not judge you by how good you have lived your life. He does not judge you by the number of people that you have helped. He does not judge you by the foundation that you have. I'm talking about foundation, charity. He does not judge you based on what? Based on how good you are in basketball or football or volleyball. He does not judge you according to your ability. He does not judge you according to how good of a mind or brilliant your mind is. We have to understand, friends, that the only basis for judgment is your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Is your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of the day, we have to understand this. I don't know with you, but I am so thankful that I am saved. I am so thankful that I am saved because we would understand one thing, that Jesus is the only Savior from our sin. That the Bible teaches us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Nothing more, nothing less. Nothing else is more important than that. That the only man who will save us from our sins is the Lord Jesus Christ. How does these things apply to every single one of us? First thing is here. Some of you are goyims who have not made their way to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have not made your way, then let me borrow the words of the people in the book of Acts when Peter started preaching to them. And they started asking Peter, what must we do then? And Peter simply tells them, repent and be baptized, every one of you. So if you are a goyim, you have not made your way, stream your way to the Lord Jesus Christ. The simple message for you is this, repent and submit your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. To the rest of us, my prayer for us is this. The book of Psalm tells us that God loves the gates of Zion. The love of God was more here is more present there than all the dwelling place of Jacob. What is my point? If you're here and you are a Christian, 
You have to have a zeal for the house of the Lord. A passion for the kingdom of God. Why? Because this is the only means of salvation that God will use for the nations of the world. As much as you have zeal for your own habits, for your own friends, for your own families, God looks at you right now and is looking at you and looking for your zeal and your passion for the church of God. We say, I love victory. We say, I love church. Yes, I love church because of the people in the church. But more than that, I love church for the purpose that it has. That God has instituted the church to disciple the nations of the world. Amen. You just heard a message from Victory Dumaguete. For more messages like these or to access other resources, please visit victorydumaguete.org or like our page on Facebook.